Good afternoon and welcome to the Learn English Football Podcasts with your host Tim and Tom. Hi Tom, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Tim. How are you? I'm very well. If you're happy, it means you can't be Italian. That's right, yes. And as an Englishman who lost a major tournament to Italy last summer, I must admit I'm a little bit happy that I won't have to play them again in the next tournament. Yes, I must admit, I did send a couple of abusive text messages last week when North Macedonia disqualified Italy. Uh, I'm still waiting for a reply. Mm, is that what we're going to talk about first? Are we going to pick apart that match? When you say pick apart, you mean analyse, right? Exactly. Yes, I'd like to know what went wrong for the European champions. Well, it was a, it was a classic match of attack against defence. North Macedonia had four shots and scored one goal. And Italy had 32 shots and scored zero goals. And it was a late goal um, by the North Macedonia team that eliminated Italy. Uh, it was so late that it, you, it gave the Italians no time to make a comeback. Mm -hmm. In fact, you could see the faces in the, of the Italian defenders when the goal went in. You could see it in their eyes. They were broken men. Not only that, there have been plenty of uh, videos on YouTube of Italian fans reacting to that moment in their living rooms at home. And I, I guess the word... Shock is the best description. Disbelief. Disbelief. Yeah, yeah if you're an Italian fan, I think uh, maybe you wouldn't ad have admitted it publicly, but secretly you were you were focusing on the Portugal match. Um, mm -hmm. You weren't worried about the North Macedonia match. But let's have a look back at the last few years of Italian football. Uh, let's not forget in 2006 they won the World Cup. Of course, a famous World Cup final for Zinedine Zidane's red card. Mm -hmm. Uh, for headbutting uh, Marco Materazzi, uh, who had also scored a goal. Uh, and then in 2010, they were eliminated in the group stage of the World Cup in South Africa. Uh, it was a poor World Cup, so they went from winning the competition to going out at the first round. So that should have been the first warning sign, Tom. Um, can you remember any major changes in, in Italian football around that time? I certainly can't. I think they were resting on their laurels. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean there, Tom? Yes, it means that they were celebrating their victories. They weren't looking to make changes. They were keeping things the same. Yes, they certainly were. And the real warning sign should have come in 2012 when, OK, in the Euros they did get to the final, but they got destroyed by a Spanish team that were playing modern tiki-taka football, focusing on passing the ball, pressing when, when out of possession almost totally opposite to the Italian style of football. Uh, and they didn't change. And Tom, in 2014, they went out again in the group stage. Um, and of course, they didn't qualify for the World Cup in Russia in 2018. So really, the, that, that 10 years was a really poor 10 years for Italian football. Indeed, and this is, you're talking about national football, but even in club competitions, they've, they've not won a serious trophy, I believe, since Inter Milan in 2010. And that Inter Milan side, Tom, was a, a side packed full of foreigners. There weren't mm. that many Italians playing in the sides. Mm. Yes, I mean, this was Mourinho. Yeah, it was a great team. side, uh, Ibrahimovic, Eto. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it wasn't I know a you're side. Thinking of the Argentinian striker. Milito. He's, Milito got the goals. An yeah. absolute goal machine, mm -hmm. yes, of course. Um, but then they don't qualify in 2018. Okay, they win it in 2020. Now. This, if you look at it in a context, in a historical context, 
This looks like the anomaly, the mm. outlier. What do I mean by an anomaly or an outlier? Something which conforms to the pattern or something which is obviously different? Something that is obviously different. Something that is exceptional rather than following the trend and following the form. Yes, I think uh, the time for Italy to look itself in the mirror was around that final in 2012 when they lost 4-0 to Spain. Because they have technical players. They are a, t a country which produces players which can control the ball, who can pass and move. So the ingredients were there for them to reflect on a tactical level and try and change and try and move with a modern game, and they haven't. And it seems that 10 years has passed them by. This was 2012. We're now in 2022, and there are... They're, they're, they're lying in the bed they've made. Mm -hmm. And if I say, you've made your bed, now you've got to lie in it, Tom, mm -hmm. what do I mean? It means that I'm holding you responsible for your bad fortune or the results of, of what you've done. Yes, they've got to live with the consequences. Mm -hmm. So, Tom, uh, let's have a look back at the group stage. Um, can you think of the best penalty taker in the Premier League? If you had to back one Premier penalty taker in the Premier League, who would you back? Uh, well... I think if if we're talking about Italy, then it has to be Jorginho of Chelsea. Yes, he almost redefined the penalty in the Premier League. The kind of, I'm going to run up and decide where I'm going to put the ball whilst kicking the ball in my kicking stride after the, the, the goalkeeper has made a movement. That's right. He was never interested in power. He was always ready to wait for the keeper to move first. Yeah, and I think his record in England is incredible. I think he's only missed one penalty and I think he scored his first 20 penalties or something like that. Anyway, in the group stage against Switzerland, Jorginho missed a penalty. Uh, and I think that was one of the opportunities Italy had to win the group. Obviously, they came second in the group, meaning they went to the playoffs, and Switzerland won the group. Mm -hmm. um, do you think uh, Do you think Italy should be beating a side like Switzerland? I know Switzerland, uh, you're a big <laughs> fan of theirs. Yes. Uh, well, what you have with a, a team like Switzerland is a, a group of players who know each other very well and they know their style of play very well. In comparison with the Italian team, a lot of fresh faces have come into the squad. So, uh, not necessarily. I don't. On, of course, history, on prestige, yes, of course, you expect Italy to beat Switzerland. But with the current groups of players that you're looking at, no, not necessarily. Yeah, talking about those uh, new players they've had recently, they've had this uh, the Barellas, the Spinazzolas, the Chiesas, um, Insegna, although he's a bit older, has really come into his own in the national side. And this season, they've been off form or injured. Barella and Insignia have, have really been struggling for form at club level. Mm. Uh, and Spinazzola, you remember how in crucial he was over mm. the summer. And Chiesa, again, really crucial over the summer. They've both got long-term injuries. So do you think it's normal that any country that loses maybe three or four big players, do you think it's normal that they are going to suffer? Or should a big footballing country like Italy have substitutes who can come in and do a job like, for example, in England or France might have? Uh, rather than blaming the, the injuries, which I think they would have felt, you know, you didn't mention Chiellini and Bonucci, who, who haven't played very much for, for Italy in, in this since last summer as well. Uh, they are a big loss because of the mental strength that they bring to the Italian team. But rather than blame the injuries, 
Uh, I'm more inclined to blame the fact that Italy went from an emotional high of winning a tournament last summer, and there is always an inevitable fall after the high. Collectively, it can be hard for the players to motivate themselves and compete with the same intensity and passion that they had done in the Euros tournament. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I think that's something we're going to come back to later, actually, with a different question we've got. But I think there's definitely something in what you've just said. Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially, they've had a difficult group. They've had some injuries, uh, but but essentially they've been their own worst enemy. And I think in group football, um, when you're trying to win a game 1-0 or or with a low-scoring game, then essentially you're opening yourself up to mistakes. Because if you don't score that goal, or if you have one defensive error, then then the result can totally change. Whereas if you're a a more modern-style footballing team who's looking to score as many as possible, like a Spain or a Germany or a France, then maybe you score one goal less, or you concede a goal that you weren't expecting to, well, you still have a margin for error. And I think this Italian style of football whilst being almost perfect for for cups and and while you're actually at the tournament, I don't think it's ideal for for group stages. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, it's not the first time Italy have gone to the playoffs. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Tom, moving on to Serie A. Um, You touched on it a second ago. Um, The last winners uh, of the Champions League from Serie A were Inter Milan in 2010. They had some semi-finalists with Roma. Uh, after that, of you remember that famous victory of Roma against Barcelona, but that um, this season they've got no quarter finalists in the Champions League, um, and they're they're struggling generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, the under twenty one coach called Paolo Nicoletto has said that he's having to look in Serie Serie C or Serie C if we're going to mm-hmm. talk Italian mm-hmm. uh, to find players. He says there aren't enough young Italian players coming through uh, in Serie A. And weren't you saying you've uh, been reading something similar? Yes, the uh, one of their most successful managers, uh, Sacchi, I believe his name's Arrigo Sacchi, uh, has blamed this result uh, against North Macedonia on the fact that Italian football has not been investing in its youth systems, in the development of young players for too long. Uh, he, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, the Euros were an exception winning the tournament last summer. Sachi agrees. He says that's an exception to, to the rule. And if you look back since 2010, Italian football has been in decline, both at a club level and at an international level. Yeah, I think it certainly has. I've got a couple of statistics for you, Tom, that I think are going to shock you. Uh, one of them is that in the top eight clubs in Serie A, uh, there are o- only 18 Italians who start regularly. Um, so that's okay. That's from a maximum of eighty-eight players. Only only eight of them are Italian, and of those, uh, sorry, only eighteen of those are Italian. And from those eighteen players, seven seven of them are, are centre backs. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, that's basically saying that at the top level of, of Italian football, the the clubs that might be playing in the Europa League or in the Champions League, there are, there simply aren't enough Italians. Mm-hmm. So what's the result of that uh, lack of top level experience? when translated to the international level. Yes, you can see that comes out in these crucial playoff games. Uh, you could, uh, Just as it happened against North Macedonia, the same thing happened four years ago in the playoff game against Sweden. Uh, I'm sure Italian fans have a déjà vu watching. Uh, by déjà vu, I mean a, a flashback. Unpleasant memories have repeated themselves. 
when they've watched that North Macedonia game. It comes from a lack of experience of playing in pressure games, in, in playoff matches or at the highest level of football. Yeah, uh, and another very worrying uh, statistic, not just for now, but also for the future of Italian football. Uh, according to my research, uh, the Italian youth competition for, for players under 21 is called the Primavera League, and only one-third, so 33%, of the players in the youth league are Italian. Mm -hmm. So you can see why our friend Paolo Nicoletto, uh, mm -hmm. the under-21s under coach, is worried. Yes, although if I may just play devil's advocate here on a couple of the points. Uh, first of all, we could say that it Italy continues to produce world-class centre-backs. That's yes. something they're the best at, which your statistics showed. And we also, if we make a comparison with England, uh, I'm pretty sure that in English football, we don't have very many uh, English players playing at the top division uh, in the Premier League. And it has not had a negative effect on our on the quality of our national team recently. I would agree with you up to an extent. I think I would have definitely agreed with you 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think in England recently, in the last five years, there has been a bit of a shift, a bit of a mm -hmm. change towards uh, playing young talent. Now, I don't think it's because British clubs have, have decided for, for generous, selfless reasons to, to make this change. I just think they're lucky that they've invested well in youth, uh, in the youth academy and good players are coming through. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe that's what Italy needs to do. But you've got to remember, England has a lot more money to invest in these things. Mm -hmm. um, so, Tom, uh, if you were the president of Italian football, mm -hmm. what changes would you be looking to make? I've been reading online uh, old players, old managers... Uh, in Italian football, calling for a limit on foreign players. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there are advantages and disadvantages to bringing in uh, foreign player caps. Uh, mm -hmm. When I say a cap, I mean a limit. Mm -hmm. uh, can you think of any solutions that would fix this, either in the short, short term or in the long term? Yes, I, I'm not sure I agree with the, the foreign player limit. I think that a better investment for Italy, Italian football would be to do what Germany did after the 2000 uh, World Cup failure. 2002 World Cup failure, uh, they invested heavily in first-rate high, I mean, first high-level coaches. Uh, they have a huge number of professional football coaches in German football now, and this raises the standard of grassroots football. By grassroots, I mean children's football. So I think that could be more useful for Italy to get that knowledge, that know-how, down to the younger children who are, who obviously they are passionate and want to play and want to develop their skills. Yeah, and I think that's the final point we'll make on this. Italy mm -hmm. is a football-loving country. Um, they see football in many ways like the English do. It's a religion to them. Mm -hmm. um, people's uh, daily lives are defined by the success of their football team. Um, and uh, you and I can understand that, Tom. Mm -hmm. So uh, we wish Italian football the best. We want to see them back in four years' time mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully on the wrong end of an England victory. <laughs> so, Tom, let's move on. Uh, we've got another question. Me and you have been having a bit of a debate this week about qualification for the World Cup because Italy haven't qualified as European champions and Egypt haven't qualified as uh, African continental champions. Mm -hmm. So, or, or did they come to the final? 
They got to the final. They lost to Senegal on penalties. They lost penalties. to Senegal. So it's been mm-hmm. a difficult couple of weeks, yeah. uh, couple of months for Mohamed Salah. Um, but do you think uh, the winners of of continental competitions should be guaranteed a place at the World Cup? So, for example, at the moment, the current winners in South America are Argentina. The current winners in Africa are Senegal. The current winners in in Europe are Italy. Do you think they should be guaranteed a place in the World Cup? No. No, I don't. Uh, The reason is, is that uh, football is a wonderful game because the underdog has an opportunity to win. Just as Macedonia, uh, by some miracle, absorbed all that pressure against Italy and then got a very, very late goal. That's the kind of surprise, the kind of upset which we love about football. It's the David meets Goliath and just very occasionally... David beats Goliath. So uh, even though Italy are the European champions, even though they would probably get to the later stages of the tournament and and do better than a team like North Macedonia in the tournament, uh, I don't think we should guarantee their place there, even though I'm sure people at FIFA would disagree with me because I'm sure that uh, Italy are a much bigger money spinner. By that I mean they attract much more attention on the television. Yeah, I'm sure they would attract far more sponsorship money and things like that. Um, I I get what you're saying, but I just think that um, we should have the best teams at a World Cup. A World Cup is a festival of football, and we want to see the best players uh, playing in in this competition. Let's face it, these players possibly have three or four World Cups in their career. And we don't want players like Mohamed Salah missing out on this top-level competition. Um, so I, I think it's a real shame. And another point I have is you see a lot of these qualification games against Luxembourg, Andorra, Liechtenstein. Uh, or if, you know, for example, for North America, you might have a match against uh, Puerto Rico or something like that. What's the value in a three points against one of those matches? Um, for example, uh, one of the qualifying matches was uh, America against one of the Central American uh, mm-hmm. countries. Like a Honduras or Nicaragua. I think it was Honduras. Yeah. And they played the match in uh, in conditions, I think, I can't remember which state it was in, mm-hmm. uh, but it was minus 20 degrees centigrade. Uh, three Honduran players left the pitch with hypothermia. <laughs> um, and I was thinking, you know, what's the value in these three points? What does these three mm-hmm. points in a group qualifier really tell us? Mm-hmm. But... When a, when, a, when a country has managed to win, or in the case of Egypt, get to the final of a major cup competition with millions of eyes around the world watching the match, surely that's more important. I can agree with you on one thing. It is a, a real joy to watch players who, who are part of a, a team like Salah or uh, Sadio Mane at Senegal take the captaincy of their countries And you see how their style changes, how they often lead their team and carry their team and play with more confidence than you see at club level. Uh, Zinchenko at Ukraine is another example who came into midfield last summer at the tournament. I really enjoy to see, uh, enjoy watching these players uh, step up and and, uh, play in a different way, but not enough to give them autom- an automatic route to, to a tournament. I, I still can't agree with you that uh, you know they should automatically qualify on a previous victory. Fair enough. Um, coming back to the point you made recently in, in the last top point we were talking about, a lot of these teams that don't qualify, having won the competition, 
Maybe they've taken their foot off the pedal a bit. They've relaxed a bit. They've got what I would call a success hangover. Mm -hmm. Um, And are they being punished for the success they've had in a previous competition? Mm -hmm. Should our football governing bodies like FIFA and UEFA account for this psychological effect, which I think if you were to do look at studies is a real tangible thing, should we be making an exception for our teams that have this victory and then have a natural disadvantage of having won it? I mean, I think back to, to France in, to, in the year to, in 2002 when they went out to, was it... Uh, Senegal beat them in the first game. Exactly, and, then yeah. they, and, then, and that was after having won the World Cup and the European mm-hmm. Championships. It's a good point, but uh, absolutely not. And I know who would agree with me on this one. Michael Jordan. <laughs> I'm sure he I know, it's, I know it's not a, a footballer, but elite professional athletes mm-hmm. will tell you that that success hangover you're suffering is of your own making. You are responsible for that, and you are the person or you are the team who can clear that hangover and start winning again. So, uh, yes, I, again, I, I couldn't disagree more strongly with the idea. Right, fair enough. And I understand one argument against this is the logistical factor. I mean, how would you make an extra team or a different team in it? And I think a couple of years ago, I would have said that this logistical argument was a very strong argument. But uh, when we see how quickly football was able to change with the COVID pandemic conditions, when we look back at previous World Cups that have had joint hosts, and suddenly both Korea and Japan were able to qualify and the numbers weren't affected and it was accounted for without there being major problems. It seems to me that when football, when there's a real appetite in football to change, some of these immovable barriers become very movable very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I get it, Tom. For you, it's a more of a sporting integrity mm-hmm. situation, and I respect that. Um, but I think on on an entertainment level, it's a shame. So I suppose it, what is what is football about? Is it a sports? Uh, is it for sports, or is it for entertainment, or is it a bit of both? How do you feel taking the same side of the uh, the Super League proponents? Well, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> well, I'm talking about the European Super League, and they were making the same arguments that you've just made. Yes, and that's the beauty of football, uh, full of uh, hypocrisy. Uh, Tom, one last point before we finish. Uh, I'm sure you've heard or read or even saw the ugly scenes at the end of uh, Egypt-Senegal in the final. Um, it wasn't one laser pointer being shone at Mohamed Salah. His whole face was covered in laser pointers. Um, the, the, of course, the match was in Senegal. The Egyptian bus was attacked on the way to the stadium. Uh, windows were smashed. Uh, a security team had to uh, escort Mohamed Salah and, the, and some of the other Egyptian players off the pitch at the end of the match. Um, now, Egypt have complained to FIFA about this, and I don't know what results they want from this complaint. But obviously, it's an ugly side of football. But is it something that is is it something they can complain about? Do, did it affect the integrity of the result? Mm-hmm. Is it just something that when you have fifty thousand people in a stadium that you just have to live with? It's impossible to police every single person. What do you think? That's a very tough one. You, you, you would be talking about uh, searching every fan who enters to make sure that they don't have a a pen, essentially, that, that, that a laser pointer disguised as a pen. Uh, it could be a very difficult thing for the security of, of any stadium to be able to eliminate this. It is a real shame that it's happening with more frequency. 
it's hard to know exactly how much impact it has. I think that's a question for Mohamed Salah or other players who have had the lasers pointed at their faces. Uh, I honestly don't know what the solution would be, but uh, uh, yes, I, I, I would like to know what Mohamed Salah has to say about it. Did it affect his, his kick? Well, I mean, I've got a, a pretty crazy solution. It will never be done, of course. Would uh, if if it's uh, if it happens on a penalty, they just uh, wheel out a kind of gazebo structure <laughs> and cover the penalty taker and the goal, uh-huh. and just let the let the cameras in. Obviously, <laughs> that's never going to happen, Tom. Uh, Tom, do you have any other points you'd like to make on any of this? No, I think so. I think we've uh, we've talked enough about uh, Italy and and these couple of arguments here i think we might come back with another episode to talk about the the rest of the teams that who are going to qualify for the world cup yes i think we've got uh, most of the teams qualified there's a couple of qualifying final matches going on in june uh, but yes we're getting there tom and i think these are might be the th- these might be the first signs of uh, world cup fever mm-hmm. which is very dangerous very very uh, contagious yes. uh, one last question tim i know that you have a, a strong affinity for italy uh, do you feel sorrow or a little bit relieved that you might not have to face them in the tournament? Well, as a football fan, Tom, I've got two things that I like. Watching my team win and watching my rivals lose. Mm-hmm. So when I saw Italy go out as a rival, even though I loved the country, I was happy. Um, <laughs> so, so very little sympathy, very little sympathy. <laughs> yes, I, I see it the same way. I, I just see now that England... We have more probability of winning our first tournament since 1966. And on that positive note, we'll call it a day. Thanks, Tom. Oh, just a last thing. If any of our listeners want to contribute, want to leave us a rating, want to get involved in the conversation, our Facebook group is... Learn English Football Podcast. Is that, did I say that right? Left Pod. Yes. Left Pod. Learn English Football Podcast. That's right. Uh, and also... Feel free to share it with anyone who you think might enjoy listening to us talk about football. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. See you next week.